Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, and our latest collection of snapshots of creativity around the island and the world. And this time we're in Walthamstow to hear a possible future for the piano soloist with Zubin Kanga. We're in Thomastown to enter the extended musical universe of recent Star Wars soundtracking. And in Dublin with poet Adam Wyeth, who's dwelling on silence. But we begin this week in Berlin, imagining how to imagine the bigness of big data, the largeness of large language models. For her latest postcard, Jennifer Walsh has been trying to do just that, with the help of the inhabitants of Berlin's Natural History Museum. This is Jennifer Walsh's Things Know Things. A couple of weeks ago, I did a performance in Berlin. I had a late flight the morning after the show, and so I jumped at the chance to visit the Natural History Museum there. All natural history museums are festivals of the uncanny. That's why I like them. But Berlin's Museum für Naturkunde takes it to a whole new level. For starters, they have a stunning range of taxidermy displays. Full-size zebras and lions peer at you from glass display cases. Pandas lazing on tree branches, pairs of parrots fleeting and grooming, a leopard caught in mid-air leaping to catch a bird. But that's only the beginning. Alfred Keller's huge models of insects are precision wonders. Houseflies, weevils, Colorado beetles scaled up hundreds of times so that they're up to a metre in size. Yes, a beetle the size of a golden retriever. The models make the bizarre details of insect anatomy visible at our scale. The tiny hairs which line a fly's legs, the multiple globes which comprise the Brazilian treehopper's head. Out of respect for our arachnophobic friends, I will not dwell on the huge model of a spider. Then there's the ominously named Wet Collection, housed in a huge space positioned next to Keller's models. The Wet Collection is not only a feat of collection, but a feat of staging. Picture floor-to-ceiling shelves lined with thousands of jars containing specimens suspended in liquid. Fish, squid, globs of matter looming out from cloudy fluids, row after row. It feels like being on a film set, though more horror than night at the museum. Walking through the wet collection, I was overwhelmed by the physical reality of the collections at the museum, at the space the artefacts take up struck by the fact that what I could see represented only a tiny percentage of the museum's holdings, and that nevertheless it was enough to overwhelm me. In another part of the building, I had watched the museum's digitization project in action. Tray after tray after tray of specimens winding their way through a complex architecture of cameras to be scanned from all angles, Millions of specimens waiting to be logged and filed for all eternity. So, so much stuff. As I drifted towards the exit, I sat down in the Hall of Dinosaurs to reflect for a few moments. Tristan Otto, one of the world's most important T-Rex specimens, loomed over me. It was a weekday morning and the space was busy with visiting school groups. 
A knot of teenagers sat nearby, filling in worksheets their teachers had given them. The teenagers paid no attention to the dinosaurs or the display. They were all using ChatGPT to fill in the worksheets, balancing their phones on their knees as they copied the information. It struck me that a natural history museum is a supercomputer, housing a massive data set about life and our planet. But no matter how overwhelming the uncanniness or the scale of the collections of even the largest museum, they are piteously, piteously small compared to the data sets that ChatGPT and similar AI systems are working with. Sitting, looking up at the T-Rex, I wondered how it would feel to walk through a museum as large as the datasets ChatGPT trains on, to have a sense of the physical scale of that data. And if, inside it, there'd be another nest of teenagers, their backs turned to it all, using their phones to fill in a different worksheet. Jennifer Walsh there, sizing it all up, and you can find previous episodes of Things Know Things on the Culture File podcast feed. And now from Berlin to Thomastown. Thomastown is where musician, producer and soundtrack composer Leo Pearson makes his music these days. Pearson was previously known as a producer of dance music with Irish duo Soulcat and has worked in the studio with the likes of U2 and Christy Moore. But now, in Thomastown, he's been developing a hub for music for media, working regularly for Cartoon Saloon, recently creating the soundtrack for the Kilkenny Animation Studio's contribution to Disney's Star Wars universe. Screech's Reach. Quaylen McNamara visited Pearson at work in his studio. If it was like a film, I'd probably start with trying to get a, a, a theme for a character. So, like, very simple, it's just a couple of notes, you know. And, and really just try and not have it resolve. So it's kind of... My name is Leo Pearson. I'm a composer for media. And we're in my studio in Thomastown in Kilkenny. You know, so it just kind of can go around. And so that would be your, like, basic little sketch. Obviously, this piano is just a, a... what they call a virtual instrument, and that's going straight into the computer. So I have that information through MIDI. So those notes are in there. And then I can uh, flesh out the chords and the the melody uh, with strings. So, you know, first foot in, second foot in, viola, cello, bass. So you might end up... I don't know if you can hear that, but... Yeah, so you can see that the, you know, the idea of this is uh, she's getting into the ship and heading off, but 
the the story of this film is you're, you're not sure if it's a good move for her or a bad move. So that's why the last chord is a little bit dissonant and a little bit kind of it's not as uh, it doesn't resolve like it's not landing and yeah there's some sort of oh maybe maybe this isn't the best idea or maybe it is you know you don't know obviously I'm in Kilkenny Cartoon Saloon is in Kilkenny one of the producers got a chance to direct a uh, Star Wars animation and uh, he asked me would I do the music for it so yeah that was crazy <laughs> you know because the maddest thing about it really was going to work and you open up the project the banner on at the start of the video was lucas film you know and you know all this kind of thing <laughs> and, and then halfway through you're you're scoring a, a a lightsaber fight scene and you're just like this is a bit wild you know but i'm of an age that i grew up with those first few movies and uh to sort of be sitting there doing that kind of thing is is wild, you know. Uh, that's uh, the Star Wars one. Like there's all lightsabery stuff. You know. <laughs> my own uh, limitations but also my own taste that I wouldn't have very complex uh, melodic lines and stuff. I'm more interested in sound so if I get something really simple it's easier for me to make that a, a bigger thing than if there's loads of stuff going on uh, melodically, does that make sense? room so over here is a bunch of old vintage synthesizers which are um, yeah get used every so often then uh, this is my workstation here keyboards I started in bands as a kid um, playing drums and then when I left school I got kind of interested in samplers and synthesizers and bought a little bit of equipment and started building a studio up with a friend of mine and then that led me into producing bands myself. I was in U2's studio and then I had a, my own room in their studio and uh, suppose I got it through my own ignorance of not really knowing what I was going for <laughs> you know because I walked into a room with uh, four members of you two and Brian Eno and Daniel Lanwa, but I didn't know who they were. And they were uh, the two of them were asking me more questions than the band. But yeah, that was a that was a great education. I mean, there wasn't really any international Irish groups back then, and just to see what was required for your music to get out of Ireland. I, well, I had a studio in my mother's basement, Christy lived up the road and uh, I was friends with 
his son. So uh, he came down, he did it, he just played a tune on acoustic guitar, went off, left me to it, said, do whatever you want. So I just did this kind of weird electronic <laughs> it sounds bizarre now, you know. And uh, he liked it and asked me, would I do a, a record? I'm still pretty proud of it because, I mean, nowadays, you throw a stone, you're going to hit someone singing a folk song, you know. But uh, back then, I don't know, it, 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 it pushed a boundary for sure. For me, to have the kind of life that I want, um, I, I do all sorts of different things. It's not that I get bored with one thing, it's just I'm curious about something else, you know. So if I see something that kind of interests me, I, I want to go all in on that, find out all about it, and go, okay, that's that, and then look for something else, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I don't have any any one thing that is better than the other because, uh, look, it's all a bit of crack. I mean, I come in here and mess around <laughs> with toys you know <laughs> definitely not a real job like. Leo Pearson there and the reporter was Quaylen McNamara The Screechers Reach episode of the series Star Wars Visions is on Disney Plus and Pearson's soundtrack is on Spotify where playing it reveals a kind of neat easter egg try it this year's New Music Dublin Festival is coming up in April with a range of show-stopping performances you'll be hearing more about on Culture File in the coming weeks, ranging from a soprano who sings live while getting a tattoo to work from our guest poet Adam Wyeth. Wyeth is teaming up with composer David Downs and actors Owen Rowe and Ashling O'Sullivan to create There Will Be No Silence, and he spoke to Culture File's Angelo Shaughnessy about the place of silence in an actor-poet-composer a tag team. With this piece, There Will Be No Silence, we talked about various ideas that we wanted to sort of... He wanted to do something contemporary, because David's very much known. He'd worked on Riverdance and Celtic Women, hugely successful uh, projects that he'd done, but he's really comes from a more contemporary classical background. So he wanted to do something like that, using text in some sort of way. So it, it grew from that, and in fact the title... There Will Be No Silence came over a phone call where I was, I was trying to gauge from him is there going to be moments of silence? Is it going to be music all the way through? How is it going to work? Is it going to, are they going to be reading over? And David said, oh no, there will be no silence. And I was like, oh, that's a good title. You know, and I, and I think, you know, we wanted something with that dramatic tension. It was about kind of capturing, I suppose, you know, any long-term relationship that there could be sort of grievances and shadows and elements like that. What happened to the old piano that was put out on Leinster Lane? One of the poems I, I really like is the old piano. It sat there for days doing nothing. Some stopped and clinkered with its keys that were stiff and roomy. Clearly no one had looked after the piano in years. And it's about, it's a true story. There's a piano, there was a piano that had been left out of a, of a house, it was kind of thrown out of a house. And I just sort of wrote this imaginative piece about this life of piano, but it kind of then become this, became this sort of personification piece of like, of people who are left out, people who, you know, are homeless people or whether it might be refugees and just kind of forgotten about. And what happens, I'm always interested in that as well, the sideline, you know, what isn't, 
the people who aren't celebrated, the people who are nameless very much in our society. Someone must take it. But, like passing a rough sleeper who we assume will be taken in, no one ever did. A lot of my plays have a kind of ghostly feel to them and there aren't real ghosts there but I think the real I believe that real ghosts actually exist within ourselves they're part of our own psychology and uh, you know that is that is the ghost and, and of course that's rich for drama my first poetry collection was called silent music and in fact one of the pieces in it is called silent music that's the poem the title poem from that collection which we used and so I've always had that interest but obviously between sound and silence you know that's very you know poetry has a very much musical quality uh, you know the word lyric comes from the lyre you know because it was accompanied with music so we played with a lot of those ideas between sound and silence and I suppose that feeds then into what's said and what's not said in a relationship where that goes the hidden sort of dimensions of that the writer Italo Calvino, he says, the struggle of literature is in fact a struggle to escape from the confines of language. It stretches out from the utmost limits of what can be said. What stirs literature is the call and attraction of what is not in the dictionary. Poetry then is always moving towards that numinous quality, I think, for me, something that is spiritual, something that is perhaps other to what is our normal materialistic, linear kind of surface thinking. It's, it's trying to go beyond. So as I sit here this evening, the light low, and everything quiet, Listen to the silence that plays all around me in my room, wondering if I've heard this piece before, who it belongs to. As a poet as well, I'm always interested in bringing poetry out of its normal setting. I'm someone that's kind of come from first writing poetry and then writing plays, and for me it's always been such a joy when you bring a text you've written to an actor because they just turn it, or, or a director, they add their imagination, or in this case, a composer like David, who brings his imagination or his style to it. What was lovely as well, the musicians, Adrian and Rolf, loved working with the actors, and the actors, Ashling and Owen, loved working with the musicians, because that's something they wouldn't normally do as actors. When you write poetry, okay, you might do a few readings and that sort of thing, but it, it, it's kind of done. Whereas with a play or something like this, it's just the beginning, it's the blueprint. <laughs> Words are limiting. Words can be many things, and I'm very interested in playwright Harold Pinter. He showed the bully, you know, in the world, and he showed that actually language is a weapon, and also we use language often to cloak who we really are, and it's often in the silence that the truth comes out. Okay. 
Adam Wyeth there and the reporter was Angelo Shaughnessy. There will be no silence with Ashling O'Sullivan and Owen Rowe with Adrian Mantuccello and Rolf Hine Piano will be performed on April 25th in the Kevin Barry Room at the NCH at 1pm. This year's New Music Dublin runs from Thursday 25th to Sunday 28th of April. NewMusicDublin.ie has all the details. Zubin Kanga is a pianist and composer who's leaning hard into the instrument's technological future. He's behind Cyborg Soloists, a four-year-long research project at Royal Holloway University of London, looking at what emerging technologies might mean for soloists and composers, cooking up techniques for everything from turning music into visuals or text to, in the case of a pair of gloves that Kanga demoed to Culturefile recently, a way for pianists to affect the notes they've played after they've played them. So I'm Zubin Kanga. I'm a pianist, composer and technologist. And we're here at my house in Walthamstow in northeast London. So I've got my piano, which I've... Uh, yeah, managed to fit. It's quite a big piano for this room. I don't know how you got that. It's a grand. I don't know how you got it through the door. No, I actually yeah, managed to uh, measure up the door and measure up the corridor so I could <laughs> fit this piano in. Uh, so, yeah, I've got the piano here. I've got a keyboard here set up for uh, rehearsing a piece for a recording on, on at the end of the week. And I've got my computer and some speakers here to be able to work with electronics. Uh, so it's kind of my uh, living and workspace here where I can work on the piano but also work with all these live electronics as well. You didn't mention that over here on the table there's a there's you know it goes from that very nice sort of antique looking um uh, baby grand to the uh, on the table here two black gloves which are sort of throbbing with various types of electronics. Yeah, so these are Mimu sensor gloves. So they're made by Mimu, which is a UK-based company. And they're gloves which have sensors in the fingers, flexor sensors, as well as motion sensors in the wrist. So it allows you to uh, create and control sound through gesture. And I'll be using these in the uh, performance in Dublin. So I'm putting on these gloves. They, uh, they fit on very easily with a bit of Velcro. And so there are sensors in each of the fingers. So every joint has a sensor in them. So you can basically detect any kind of gesture that you can think of. And then you use machine learning to teach the computer program to recognize what gesture you're making. So if you're make, holding up particular fingers, it can recognize that. If you're making an even more subtle gesture, sort of uh, pinching something or holding with uh, other types of fingers together. Uh, yeah, you, it can detect all these different things. So you just need to teach uh, the computer to recognize what gestures you want to use. And then you map these two particular sounds or particular triggers in the music software. The ends of your fingers are still exposed. So presumably that, that still touches a key in a familiar way. Yes. Uh, yeah, they actually, it does allow you to play the piano with them. And I am going to play the piano uh, when I play this piece, uh, Showtime by Laura Bowler. Actually, some quite uh, complex piano passages. So yes, it does allow you to play. And I do have a lot of pieces where I play the piano and then 
I'm able to lift up my hands and shape the sounds through the air. Basically, I've got different types of effects mapped to both the, the height of how I'm lifting my wrist and the way I'm rotating it. So different effects depending on how I lift up my arm up in the air or twist uh, my wrist and sort of combinations of the two. It's like a very responsive orchestra. You're conducting almost there. Yes, yeah, almost very <laughs> similar to kind of conducting techniques. And so it is kind of interesting of conducting through the air and sort of finding, sort of exploring it almost like a sort of three-dimensional space, uh, sonic space. And, you know, the, the different sounds that are feeding into it from the piano then make it react in different ways. So it's a very sort of responsive sort of instrument to explore. I've been interested and involved with contemporary music since the beginning of my career, but around 10 years ago I realised how much you could do by expanding what you can do with the piano with other technologies, so with electronics or with video. From there, it kept on expanding out because there's more and more tools you can use, more instruments, more gadgets. And then uh, a few years ago, I got a grant for a project called Cyborg Soloist, which is a current project. Out of that, I have a whole lot of industry partners, a whole lot of researchers working with me as well, and a whole lot of uh, leading composers from around the world. And together, we're creating these new works, which really push the boundaries of what you can do between a live performer with all these different types of new gadgets and tools and, uh, and software. There's a lot of freight with the word cyborg. What, what attracts you to that word? Well, I really was interested in the idea that it's not just about something that's purely electronic or purely about showcasing what the computer can do. It's really about keeping the performer and the liveness uh, at the center of the project and about extending the body a lot of that is about a lot of these gadgets, including these gloves, are about extending the body as well as the instrument. So I'm really interested in in that. And there are a whole lot of other ideas about the cyborg. There are things around um, the uh, so the way it's used in popular culture, as well as a lot of, uh, sort of other literature about the, the way we think about cyborgs and the body. There's a kind of slightly macabre sense that the the word cyborg never quite loses. Uh, perhaps. I'm not... For me, obviously, not you. <laughs> yeah, for me, there's not really a macabre, uh, macabre word. I think it's, it's really about thinking about the future of what we can do with our bodies and what, we, what uh, the future musician is going to look like. And a lot of these gadgets are really looking at you know, instruments of the future, instruments that hopefully will eventually become as standard and as easy to use as any other acoustic instrument. One of the, I guess, frustrating things about being a, a pianist that uh, you play the sound of a, of a key and it then starts to decay. And so in this way, using these sorts of technologies, you can extend the note, you can play with them, you can manipulate them, you can keep them going, almost fighting what a piano sort of normally does in terms of how you think of the sound. Even though it's the actual sounds of the piano, right? It's not, uh, it's not artificial sound. So it's really about, I guess, challenging your expectations of how this instrument's going to sound and the sounds that are going to come out of it 
and then playing with the the actual acoustic sound. So it's a, it's yeah, it's a really wonderful way of almost commenting on how a piano sounds. Zubin Kanga and Mimu Gloves in action there in Walthamstow. And Zubin Kanga will be at the piano performing a programme of cyborg soloist commissions, including work by Laura Bowler, Alexander Schubert, and his own works for piano, electronics and steel knitting needles. That's all at the National Concert Hall in Dublin on Tuesday, 7th of May. Tickets from nch.ie. And that brings to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more augmented musicality next Saturday tea time. Till then, don't forget to check out the Culture File Debate Sleep Special on our podcast feed, where you can also subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Till next time, bye now.